Appreciate you all for listening. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we had some video and audio challenges in these recordings. Give us a little grace. We're going to get it right for you, but hang in there. There's still some quality information and inspiring information for you to move closer into your financial flow. Thanks. We love the power and grace of athletes, artists, CEOs, and high achievers with their zest and grit. But have you ever wondered how they cut through all the distractions, harness their energy, and get them to flow to achieve their goals? And what do they do with the money that comes their way? I'm Darren Wright, author of Peak Financial Fitness. Join me on a fascinating journey to gain a peek into the intersection of high-performing people and everyday financial life. There will be highs and lows and inspiring stories for you to achieve your goals. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. We have Marv Lewis, my good friend, uh, hanging out with us today, talking a little bit about his successes. Uh, and everybody, I'm sure, knows Marv, but uh, he is an American football coach legend. Currently, he's a special advisor to head coach, the head coach at ASU. Is that still yeah. happening? Yeah. And we've just had a, a head coaching change recently at ASU. And uh, previously, Marv was the head coach at the Cincinnati Bengals for 16 seasons. Um, he really came to prominence as the defensive coordinator of the Baltimore Ravens from 96 to 2001, whose defense in 2000 set the record for the fewest points allowed in a 16-game season, which is pretty impressive, and led the franchise to their first Super Bowl title um, in the Super Bowl. And then this success resulted in uh, Marv being named the Bengals head coach, which he served from 2003 to 2018. And he is the Bengals winningest head coach at 131 wins and named coach of the year in 2009. And Marv is married to Peggy and has a daughter and a son and two grandkids. Three now. Three now. Okay, I'm going to update my notes. Three grandkids. So welcome, Marv. Thank you, Darren. It's good to be here, and I don't know about being a legend, but uh, <laughs> but today. Well, it's great to have you. Um, now, you began began your career as a graduate assistant at Idaho State uh, before becoming the team's linebackers coach for four seasons from '81 to '84, and then you led them your first year to a. Uh, Division II championship, is that right? Yeah, one AA championship. Actually, when I was a grad assistant coach. So, okay. uh, but yeah, I was fortunate enough to see a turnaround uh, from not winning any games to being national champions in over two That's pretty incredible. Yes. How old were you at that point in time? Uh, shoot, 91, I would have been uh, 23 years old. 23. Yes. So you got a quick taste of success. <laughs> very, very quick. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's. Uh, I think winning is. Uh, when I watched it come from the inception, or as you know, from when I went there in '76, to see the turnaround that happened in '80 and then in '80, and uh, you know, very similar uh, situation from '96 to 2000 with the Baltimore Ravens. Very similar, as far as as I say, from the zenith, from the ashes. <laughs> and then you rose to be champions. That's that's amazing. So, how old were you when you had your first coaching gig then? So my first full time job was in '84, or excuse me, '82, uh, which I made the whopping amount of ten thousand dollars, and I lived in the uh, football dorm. Okay. I wasn't in charge of the football dorm anymore, so I was relaxed. Uh, as when a GA we lived there, but we had responsibility with the players where the graduate assistants were in charge. And then literally the day I got married in 1983, uh, I got promoted and my salary doubled and I got a free car. So it was a good day. That's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good when you have a free car. It's good when you have a free car. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so as you reflect back on your body of work, you know, well, let me, let me go back a little further. What was it that got you into coaching? What was it that uh, inspired you to want to get into coaching, and in particular, you know, football coaching? You know what? I, I think I was blessed uh, at a young age when I started playing football at the age of, I guess, eight, nine years old, that I had uh, young or men who, fathers, 
who really cared about us as young 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 boys, young kids, and and mentored us and taught us the game of football on into high school where I went to a high school where the junior high and the high school were relatively in the same area. So literally when I'm playing Little League Baseball, the head high school football coach is assistant baseball coach in Little League because he has two boys on our team. And so and with him basically all my life. And so he was a great mentor to me on how to do things uh, in coaching and taught the game of football and so forth. So I was really blessed. And the fact that my, my father spent 30 years in the steel mill, and I knew I didn't want to do that. I spent nine weeks one summer, and that was enough. Uh, that was enough. What were those nine weeks like? Those nine weeks were shift 11 to 7. And, and I would try to work the same shift my father was working. Because <laughs> I made a lot of money. But it was really hard work. Uh, I don't know how those men did that like they did for years and years and years. They called me college boy. And, uh, you know, because I worked my days off, I doubled out a lot. You know, they would come to me and say if I would stay over and work another shift. And early on, I did that because uh, I was saving money for a new car. and uh, But then as I got time to prepare for football, I had to start declining those opportunities and go home and start training for football, you know, once the month of July rolled around. Well, so, I mean, and we're saying 11 to 7, that's 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. 7 a.m., yes. Yeah. Wow. And then you had something to do, I assume, after 7 a.m. Yeah, I would go home and sleep for a little while and get up and do my running and working out and, get prepared for football, but uh, yeah, you know, I started in the labor gang, and you learned everything you could do on a shovel. I mean, you learned how to, to eat, sleep, lean on it. I mean, you know, it was basically shoveling, like, you know, eight hours a day, but because you clocked in, and you literally clocked out eight hours later, and in that time, you dressed, you showered and left, you know, and clocked out. You ate lunch. You took two breaks. I mean, it was an efficient operation. There were three shift, eight-hour days, and that's the way they did it. Yeah, that's incredible. Oh, it was. It was. It was. It's eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And the next summer, I stayed out of college, and I worked for Kraft Foods, where we dressed in all white, and you had. It was a fifty-pound, fifty-pound box of cheese. You needed to call for a hand cart to pick it up, and we were dressed in all white. So, uh, you know, what a contrast in experiences. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's what I mean. That's a great example of hard work. Uh, how did how did that happen? How did you, you know, not everybody pulls those pulls those all nighter shifts. student and all that. It came from my parents, my father. I watched my father do it and his his friends and the peers and the other fathers that lived on our street, you know, where I grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, uh, the mill was a great job. I mean, a great job. Uh, and a lot of the guys went to the service. When they came home from the service, they were fortunate enough that they could get a job in the mill uh, that way. And so uh, but it was uh, interesting enough, the summer that I, my father helped me get the job in the mill, we had to sign a, uh, I guess it would be uh, a, the ability to become unionized. So, because I could work enough hours by doubling out, working my days off, where I could qualify for the union and then they couldn't get rid of you. And I guess in the past they had some college students do that, some summer help. And, uh, and not go back to school. And I said, believe me, I was worried on the same was I hear it how many times because I'm not doing that. You don't have to worry about me wanting to stay, you know, so. Well, that, that's that's saying something. I mean, I, I think about some of the summer jobs that I had and it's nothing like, like that kind of work, so. Just what hard work's all about. You understand that. That's the way men worked. And uh, my, our neighbors had a rubbish business that they started, and he worked that business on his days off until he got enough money to afford to run the business. My father would work some of his days off on the rubbish business, 
And then once in the summer, my early summer jobs were always on the garbage truck. So, you know, I had many jobs. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up with uh, in a working area where, where everybody worked. I got to imagine there's a lot of yeah. coaches in your field that are reaching out to you and trying to pick your brain on, on your story. I, I think the biggest thing is that uh, the pool of coaches has grown and it's harder and harder. When I was coming up, it was the first time of the USFL and a lot of coaches left good college jobs to go and coach in the USFL and they were at that point uh, running uh, not parallel to the NFL but more springtime and so forth similar and uh, but guys left jobs and and they were trying to compete with the NFL and so it added opportunity for guys at my age to move up in coaching a lot quicker now the college staffs have a group of animals that you know are sometimes six and eight deep on each side of the football and so those are all trying to young people that have already been graduate assistants who are trying to move into the full-time coaching positions or other coaches, older coaches who were on staff who get bounced out. And, and so it's so much more competitive. And I just keep trying to express, especially with my son, that I did a lot of things to gain opportunity to get where I got. Going to visit staffs, visiting spring footballs, uh, visiting NFL training camps and so forth to get an opportunity and to learn, but also to, to, to network and let people know who you are. Yeah, and, and where's Marcus right now? He just finished coaching uh, in the XFL with the Las Vegas Vipers of the XFL. Okay. Coaching the running backs. And, so, uh, and does he knock on your door quite a bit and, and try to get some advice from dad? Uh, not really. He, he knows all of it. Uh, so, you know, I mean, literally the first night he ever spent away in training camp, he was six years old. First time we didn't make it all night, I had to take him home. <laughs> but he did make it the next time he was able to get through the night, you know. But, uh, you know, so it's, that's all he knows. He's been around it his whole life. That's amazing. And uh, so you've had some setbacks in, 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 in your life. A couple of them I just want to talk about. Let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about... You guys were leading 16-15 uh, near the end uh, of the fourth quarter, and uh, you got some criticism for keeping your players under uh, under control. And in particular, uh, I think it was Vontez Perfect and Adam Jones. Vontez Perfect, the Sun Devil, uh, ironically. Um, and there was a looks like a penalty drawn by Vontez and, and Adam, and uh, moved the Steelers in the field goal range. And talk about that, or really anything else that happens and. In your in your your field. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things transpired at the end of that game. First off, we were uh, going in uh, to score and ice the game or ice the game, and we fumbled the football. We gave them an opportunity then to get the ball back instead of us icing the game. And then the same guy who put us ahead and had thwarted their drive before that was Vontez with an interception. And I just think teaching guys all the time to maintain, be in the moment, maintain their poise through the moment. Um, later on, he gets he draws a personnel penalty for, for hitting the receiver as he was going over across the middle of the field. And he literally pulled off, but it was something that you can't do in today's football. And as that all of that was going on, one of the Steeler coaches, former player, was on the field and basically prompted the action that Adam Jones later gets flagged for. And so I think literally through that, uh, I think a lot of people lost poise, uh, which is hard to maintain in those moments. But in critical moments, you've got to be more poised. And, uh, and I think that's the hardest thing and, and the lessons that were learned from that. From it, a lot of things transpired to go the wrong way. But what do you do from a coach try and get your players to be poised. You know, we talk about um, on our, in, our, in the book, uh, Financial Fitness, that I authored and some of the other guests we've had about the term financial flow, you know, being in the zone, uh, knowing what's important to you and being able to deal with adversity when it comes your way because you're focused on, on a goal. 
as it relates to football, how do you coach your 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 players to be po poised and your other coaches to be poised so that inevitably when challenges come your way, you can deal with it? I think the key thing you just said is being focused in the moment. I think you have to understand, and your job is to keep preparing them from the time you start basically all the time about what are these critical moments and making sure we handle it the right way, uh, making sure we understand that this is a bad outcome, this is a good outcome. Let's make sure we stay with all the time. And, uh, and I think you can talk about it, you can rehearse it, others, uh, but in the moment, they've got to be able to handle it or have somebody else where the cool heads prevail. Unfortunately, in football, once they leave that sideline, they go on that field, they get kind of out of your hands. So you're constantly trying to rehearse uh, what poise means and show them what poise means and being able to handle those situations. That's why on the sideline is the head coach. You, you can't be yelling and screaming. You don't want your coaches yelling and screaming because that's what leads to the players losing their, their cool and their poise. And so that's part of it as, as well. And people always ask, well, how do you stay there and maintain? Well, I have to. Uh, you know, you want, want a, brain, a brain surgeon, uh, you know, performing surgery on you, yelling. <laughs> you got to be poised through this whole thing. Well, that, that's one of the things I've, I've noticed about you, whether it's on the sidelines or on the golf course. You're, you're very poised. You're very, you have a certain way about you, a calmness um, that, uh, that I don't always see in coaches. So what is it about, you know, your background that causes you to be that way? And you're, very, you're, you're just a very good-natured uh, person as well. Well, I think it does. I, I mentioned Jim Gary earlier when we started. He never cursed. And yet he could get his point across just like anybody else. And he never cursed. And then as a young coach, I spent a lot of time watching and learning from Tony Dungy, talking with Tony Dungy. Redskins, we were playing the Colts when Tony was the coach of the Colts. And I mean, we were good. Our the running, I think we ran for over 200 and some yards against them. And when you let a team run for 200 and some yards against you, that's hard. It's, it's, that's, that's getting your nose rubbed in. And, uh, and I watched Tony on the sideline across the field just with his arms folded and just as poised and calm as he could be, where I would have been choking dudes out. <laughs> but, you know, so you learn from those. And, uh, you know, and, and obviously, uh, I spent the last four seasons here uh, around Coach Edwards, around Herm Edwards and, and his poise. And, and Herm and, and Tony came out of college the same time. Herm later worked for Tony. They were good friends, and Herm later went to work for Tony and then got his own opportunity to be a head coach in the NFL. So uh, guys like that, they teach you poise. And being around them, they teach you poise. And, uh, and you know, I, I just think that's, that's a better way uh, because not only is it for us, but the coaches that we're mentoring and the players that we're mentoring to help become better fathers, better husbands, uh, et cetera, down the line. Yeah, so how, how do you think that poise can uh, impact uh, other coaches and other players in a positive way um, in a game time situation. Because you have the, the analytics, what you've done to prepare, watching game film, the X's and the O's, you, you've done all that, you know, and you hope that everybody is studied up as the, the best they can. But then there's the, uh, really the, the creative side that, that comes on and really what instinctively what happens when, when you're in those pressure situations. So how does that poise factor into all that? Well, I think, I think number one, when you're a play caller or you're a decision maker, you got to rehearse those things in your mind. You know, one of the things as a, as a play caller in the NFL is Friday, Saturday, you got to get in your own zone. You got to become the opposing coach that you're calling against. And you want to click through the video, and this is the personnel, this is down and distance situation. Here's the call. Here's their play. This is what I'm calling. Here's their play. How do we match? 
and and you go through that and you go through that rehearsal on your own and, and that's how you do it and uh, and that's to me the best thing that that coaches when they're great coaches they can get into that zone because uh, they're not going to be a perfect call one of the things coach Dungey taught me or said to me in 97 after my first year being a coordinator in the nfl when i asked tony if he would come and spend some time with me or i could spend some time with him and we met in indianapolis and he asked me the hours I was keeping, and I told him. And he looked at me, and he says, you know, sometimes somebody's got to make a tackle, and it's second and three. Because <laughs> you're not going to have the perfect call all the time. Mm. But if you're sound, and you know, and you're doing it the right way all the time, uh, that's the thing. And then I said, secondly, is transferring that over to the players. You know, one of the thing, great things I thought, I was able to do with those guys in Baltimore and my guys continued to work for me. I continue to have them do that is on Friday afternoon, give the defensive players or the offensive players the call sheet, let them go in the room alone and call the game. Let the quarterback call the game, let the play caller on defense call the game and then them talk about what happened. What was the formation? What was the play? You know, who did what? And then they would come to you the next day, hey, Marv, what about this? When we called this, they did this. Was that right? And so that they're thinking the game ahead of you. And, and, and so you're, you're really helping them so that if you drop dead on the sideline, they could call the game. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what you want, you know. People, football players don't get enough credit for how smart they have to be. Um, because the smartest players are generally the best players. So... So what the smartest players are the best players. So what do you think separates the the truly great, the elite coaches, the elite players from just the, the average uh, good players? What's the difference between from good to great or good to elite? Eliminating the gray area, allowing them to play fast. Just allowing the, their athleticism and their ability to play comes over. So you eliminate the gray. So they Why is what makes Tom Brady so great? His anticipation of what he sees is he, he anticipates what the opponent is going to do and his reaction to it. And then the players having to be on the same page with him and making the same reaction. That's why they were so effective for so long in New England. And they got good at it in Tampa when Tom was there. But, uh, you know, having coached against him as many times as we did, he's hard to emulate in practice. Because he's over here, now he's on the other side of the field. You took that away side so quickly. That's hard to emulate in practice because everybody relaxes. Now I got mine over here, but no, he comes back and throws it back that way because you covered yours, and that guy over there relaxed. You can't relax, mm -hmm. you know. And and so those are the things that to me, the great players. The same with the defensive players. That they eliminate the gray. They can focus right on what their responsibilities and their job is. Hmm. That makes sense and. So let's talk about some challenges. We talked a little bit about uh, that example in the NFL, but let's let's talk about uh, going from uh, professional NFL, uh, you know, Arizona State, and and obviously there's a change from going to NFL to college, and um, your last uh, four years at ASU. What are some things that you've learned and? Also, is there anything you would have done differently um, looking back over the last four years? Well, I'm, I can't do anything differently because I'm not in charge of anything. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think uh, I. Yeah, let's put that out there. Yeah. I just don't think it's correct. I don't think uh, it's a good thing that. Athletes can change schools at the drop of a hat. You make a commitment. Um, it's supposed to be about education. We don't talk about education anymore. Um, and it just becomes, life's not that way. When, when uh, somebody closes a door on you in life, uh, you know, you don't get to just open it back up. You got to find a different way. You got to go through, you got to crawl through a window. Or whatever it is, you got to find a different way around it, around that obstacle. 
And right now, they just quit and go a different direction. And uh, that's the hard part. I, I think that's hard. I think that's uh, really cultivating uh, bad uh, experiences and the things that later in life they'll never recover from. You know, they, they get disappointed. What, what do I do? I just quit. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to find a way to, to, to get around that. Right. I mean, it just, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, that's, that's a tough thing to watch. I, I understand the financial part and everything, and that's great. Uh, but, you know, the families are benefiting more than the kid, and that's even putting more pressure on the, on the, on the athlete. You know, because the family has their hand out. And I understand a lot of these things are great for families. I get that. But that's why we have professional sports once we get to. So I think they could have done everything better, raised the stipend so guys or guys live the right way, live accordingly. You know, the cost of living and I can't remember the, the NCAA term for it. Uh, but there is a, a, a calculation on what it costs to go to school in Tempe as is different than Los Angeles or Pocatello, Idaho. <laughs> the cost of attendance, I think, is what it's called. You know, there's a difference. And they could have upped that for everybody and made that a better situation for everybody. Um, but as long as we're, they're not professionals, I still think there's amateurism and and going to school and they and you know school is different now i mean they basically athletes go to school almost year round so they can graduate if they they handle their business they can graduate earlier and they can get their degree many of the players at asu if they're in four years or five they're they're getting their master's done so that part is all good but i just think the ability to just up and transfer because i didn't get it touches on the football or I didn't make enough tackles or I didn't get enough reps or I didn't get to shoot enough three pointers or whatever it is, I'm out the door. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's like you're picking up your ball and going home. Yeah. And and we know that doesn't lead to, to good experiences down the line for anybody. Have you been successful in talking and coaching up some of your younger players and and um making the harder choice and sticking around? There's been a case. I thought maybe I got through, I helped, I said I helped to get through to two or three this year. We got a new coach. He's got great enthusiasm. He's got great ideas. Give it a shot. You play defensive line. Go. Just play. Where two others that played offensive line left. And I told him, you should play offensive line. It doesn't matter who they hire as a good coach. You're going to do the same thing. You're going to run block. You're going to pass block. How good do you want to be? You know, and uh, so, uh, you know, you just try. But what I find more often than not is they take the easy way, you know, or what they think is the cool way instead of uh, tightening their belt and going to work, you know. And how do you think they're making those types of decisions, most young athletes? Most of them are, a lot of them are having to go down in opportunity. You know, they're not going to other Power 5 schools very often. And I think that's also, you know, it's eye-opening for them once they put their name in that portal uh, because they're not getting the same kind of opportunity. And maybe they don't deserve it. That's fine. But, uh, you know, the coaches look at tape, and if you've got tape, they're going to look at it. They're not taking anybody's word for it. You know, and that's what I think they don't understand either. It's just like guys as they prepare to go to professional football. You know, they don't understand this is just Tempe <laughs> or this is just a Pac-12. Right. It's not the entire country. And the competitiveness of that is just so high, and, and they don't get that. You know, it's, um, it's obviously not just football. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a lot with the younger, the younger individual out there, immediate gratification. And I'm not going to say that they're not – you know, society has helped to create a little bit of this, you know, the instant gratification from cell phones and, and things like that and social media and so forth. But there's, um, there's, a, there's a thing out there where younger people are looking for that immediate gratification. And it's not just sports, it's business, it's, it's finance, it's investing. And, and um, so it's interesting to see that 
obviously it's happening in football too. And um, yeah, what do you think that is reversible or, or uh, changeable, or is it just kind of the genie's out of the bottle and that's just the way it is? Yeah, or yeah, the nose of the camel, uh, whatever saying you want to use, <laughs> it, it's out there now. I don't know how they can pull it back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe there is some ways and, and so forth. Uh, because I, I just think, you know, to my friends in the NFL that are in those decision-making roles, I just feel like there's going to be a lot of guys over the next two to three years really get their feelings hurt. Not what they thought they were going to be as far as when it comes time to the National Football League, uh, gaining opportunity, being drafted, and so forth. It's just harder than that. And I think they're going to get really disappointed. Um, so um, I, I do think it's hard. I think, you know, like I said there's some positives. There's no question about it. I mean, you talk about some of these young athletes, particularly like in Olympic sports and things like that, who are, I guess there's a gal here at ASU has her own clothing line, some things like that. I just think there's some really, there's some really cool things that are, that are taking place. But I think overall, I don't know that it's great. Uh, for, for college athletics, particularly football and basketball, as far as, you know, even like uh, last year I was watching like it was softball or whatever, baseball or whatever, and as soon as the College World Series, always got transfers. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it just, you know, you wonder why. It's almost, uh, where, where's the integrity? Where's the, the, the commitment, the loyalty? And they say, well, coach can up and leave. Well, that's college university president's fault. I mean, contract should be a contract. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really believe that. It shouldn't be, well, oh, this guy has a whatever million-dollar buyout and so forth. Then the other university shouldn't pay it. Just keep your butt where you belong. You, you sign the deal, finish the deal out, so it'll get to the end of the deal, then have an out or something. But the fact that they can just up and leave at any point, that doesn't make much sense either. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's talk a little bit about goals. So when you've had... Well, let me ask you this. If, as, you, as you reflect back over the years, what would be some of your proudest achievements in, uh, in football? Well, it's funny. I remember walking to dinner with your good buddy, Dirk Cutter's father, Jim Cutter, and him telling me, you know, we're a really good football team. And I know... Coach Cutter I used to spend Thanksgiving at their house. We'd go to his games when he was a high school coach, Dirk and I, and uh, spent a lot of time with the family. He would take me with him to watch high school games on Friday nights when I was worked for him as a graduate assistant. And we were walking to dinner, and he said, you know, we've got a really good football team. We went a lot of games this year. And, and, and that was, you know, and, and we did. We won the one AA National Championship after winning zero games in 79, and six games in 80, my last year of playing. Uh, so, and then I think later on, you, you learn time. Uh, I can remember when I went to coach at New Mexico, uh, University of New Mexico, 87, 88, 89. The basketball coach there was a guy named Gary Colson, who was an older coach who had, was kind of responsible for bringing them out of Global Gate. And we were struggling. I don't know if we won a game, I think we won in something. And Coach Colson said to me, he says, you know, sometimes when you don't win, you do your best coaching because you're trying everything you can to figure out a way just to be, have one more point than the opposition. <laughs> and and it, it rang true. And I think as uh, later on from uh, the, the like, going from where we came from in 96 uh, to getting fired, uh, after the 98 season to Brian Billick hiring me back and me actually deciding to stay put and turn down a couple opportunities for the opportunity because I felt like I was building something to what we built to and which will be the, you know, the greatest defense in the history of the National Football League because nobody will ever touch that record. And the big in four playoff games, those guys gave up one touchdown. That's incredible. You know, I mean, that's to me is the most, the, the highest mark they could achieve. In four playoff games against the best teams in the league, they gave up one touchdown. 
I mean, they just would not want the other team to ever score. And they would get mad at me at the end of games in the fourth quarter if I took them out and put in, you know, because you don't have quite a whole second team in the NFL. You have like one and a half teams. <laughs> and so, you know, so you would sub some guys out and they would get upset, you know, because they didn't want the other team to ever score. And they were proud of that. And uh, obviously, uh, the first time we made the playoffs in Cincinnati, my first year in Cincinnati, we were eight and six. We had a great opportunity to go to the playoffs. We got we were really beat up. Unfortunately, lost the last two games. The division games we lost in Baltimore, I think, and then we lost uh, at home against the Browns, which really was horrible. And but we had a chance to go to the playoffs. Sixteen, we had one game left, and they came and threw the Gatorade on me. And I was happy for the Gatorade. I was unhappy that they didn't realize what we had still ahead of us. That was not what we were playing for, was to win the division. Our goal was to be world champions. And I probably, if I could take it back, I probably should have enjoyed the moment more with them and then figured it out the next day with them. <laughs> because I I was a little bit coarse with them after the game that, uh, you know, let them enjoy it for the moment mm -hmm. and then move on. But uh, a lot of highs. And, uh, and you know, unfortunately, in coaching, we don't remember the highs as much as we remember too often the lows. That's human nature. Yeah. So as you, you know, having all that, that really sounds to me like the uh, a description of excellence to uh, stay in the game and you accomplishing that record things that drove you to that like how do you when you think of goals how does marv lewis come up with goals um small goals large goals uh audacious goals you know i don't think i thought about goals as much as i would uh of your team every day that they understand you know your weekly goals and you know uh, as an NFL head coach, you got the opportunity right away on Sunday after the game to set the direction for the next week. You reiterate it again on Monday. You get them again Wednesday at, before practice and team meeting after practice Thursday. We'll meet again with them Friday morning, reiterate it again, and then again show them how we're going to do this. And then Saturday night before the game and obviously a quick Sunday morning. So, uh, but I never myself, as a coach was to be the very best coach I could be, to put my players in the best position I could put them in. Pray for them. And as a defensive coordinator, I always tell people, I say, well, what was your goal as defensive coordinator? To get our guys on the bench drinking Gatorade without the other team scoring as quick as we could. Plain and simple. I don't care how we did it. That was my goal. It wasn't a personal battle between me and the guy on the other sideline. It was those guys out there and me helping them get their jobs done as best they could as quick. And what what did you do? And what was your mindset to be able to have the right tools? You know, in in finance um, or just in life, there's a lot of people out there that are busy executives that are um, doing their thing, and they they have personal financial goals. They've got their business goals. They've got a lot. You know, people have a lot of plate spinning. And so, you know, there's certain ways to surround yourself with experts and there's certain things you can do with tools and people to achieve these different goals on the personal and the business side. You know, you've got a lot of decisions, a lot of, you know, coaches underneath you, assistant coaches, you've got players, you've got, uh, you've got a lot of things going on. How did you handle the architecture of all that to keep moving forward? Um, and achieve the goals that are important to you? I think, number one, uh, communicating them. So like I said, that everybody understood what they are and how are we gonna get to them. You know, I really think as a leader, your, your task, uh, your burden with seeing first, most, and furthest. And I think that's what your task is all the time as a leader, is that's your job is you've got to lead the way. Uh, I got to be an intern with Coach Walsh when he started a minority fellowship program. And he told me right then, he says, you know, 
you're going to get an opportunity to be the be a part of the best uh, organization in professional sports. <coughs> Excuse me. And he goes, you know why? I go, no, coach. He goes, because if I f it up, I can fix it. <laughs> and and he was right. You know what I mean? He was very demanding on his people. Evening staff meetings at night at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And he would say, you know, they had two cornerbacks holding out that year. And he's like, Darren, who are the two best cornerbacks in the National Football League right now? And they would say, da -da 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 -da. he said, get their agents on the phone. I want to see, let's see if we can trade for them. But things like that, I think, Coach, just being a part of that and watching how other, uh, watching great people do their jobs and how they went about it doing it uh, was tremendous. Obviously, with Mike Holmgren, Bill McPherson, Ray Rhodes, Sherm Lewis, uh, Fred Von Oppen, um, just just so many great coaches that I had the opportunity to be with and learn from. <clears throat> so, you know, I was blessed all the time to keep learning. I think that's the other thing, I think, to be, you know, people ask, how do you do your job? Well, you want to be an expert at your job. And, and I think that's what's important. It's like anything else, it's like being in the financial business. You don't want the guy that's the great mechanic taking care of your money. You know, you want to hire experts to do what they do um, so that you can sleep good at night and not have to worry about things. And, uh, and I think that's the same thing in coaching. When you put the coaching staff together, it's made up of a number of different people. You have great teachers. You have people that can reach inside the hard to reach and pull it out of them. You have great X and O guys. And then you have the guys of the combination of all that. And I think it's really important. I always felt it was also important to have a couple coaches who respected that guy because they knew what he did. He had sat in that chair. And, uh, you know, I thought they also were able to communicate with the guys that were sometimes harder to reel in and bring back the home base. So, um, you know, I think it's important. It's, you know, you, you got to have a lot of different personalities. How did you deal with those difficult personalities? Because they are part of the team with the goal of winning football games. So if there's somebody in there, I mean, you can always, if you're their spirit, you can always fire them and move on. But let's say there's somebody in the team that, uh, you know, is a difficult personality. How do you deal with that? Well, I think that's the thing is, is, you hope that you do a good job of screening on the way in. And if personality might change a bit once he has some success, um, then you didn't do as good a job of screening. And so you're trying to reel that guy back in and get them to understand that if you're not helping us win, this is going to be very short term here. And uh, you may think there's 31 other opportunities, but that's not necessarily always true because they're looking at your body of work and now your body of work is declining. You're not going to get the same amount of opportunities that you think you had. And, uh, and I think that's important for them to know. Um, I think that, that when you're bringing in a new person, a new talent or whatever, that you're all on the same page coming in the door of what expectations are. And I think that was also very important. When we brought in a hard to supposedly hard to deal with person, that his my expectations, our team expectations, and his expectations could marry up, and if not, you got to go somewhere else, uh, because once you put your chip on that person, you can get maybe stuck with them for a little bit. So I think that's important, um, and I think sometimes, unfortunately, in the NFL, the personality on the field may be completely than the personality in the building. And so you got to make sure those two stay aligned as well. You know, I think that's really important because sometimes the personality in the building gets him out of the league. And that's what outsiders don't understand. It's not what he was doing on the field. It's what he was doing off the field, within the building. How is, uh, what kind of pro was he? Was How does he... all the other younger players are watching him and if you're allowing that to go on now you're you're really spoiling the bushel 
What about, um, what about owners of teams? So the owner hires you to lead the team to victory. So you're the head coach and, and uh, that's your job. You, you, you need to go to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl. That's the goal. And then you have owners that uh, um, may be uh, uh, big personalities and they may want to dabble. They may want to, you know, kind of reach back in and tell you what to do. And, and there's, there's parallels to people that may have had success in business, a financial advisor to help them, you know, achieve their goals. And then they don't follow the, the advice, even though it's, let's just say it's perfect for that individual, just like the head coach decisions may be perfect to the goal of, of winning the Super Bowl or, you know, along that path that the owner then comes in, reaches in and wants to dabble. How do you deal? A couple of things. I think number one, uh, these are very powerful men that have been very successful in life that own these teams. And I think that's the thing you can't. Or they've been given the team by their, by their father. But they watch, they watch that, you know, they watch that whole process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first thing you got to understand is they don't like to be told no. And so, you know, you got to understand that uh, going in. I think there, a lot of them are managed differently. Now, it, it's not the old school family thing that I was, was fortunate enough to be a part of like three different times, you know, literally from the Steelers uh, to Mr. Modell with the Browns. Uh, to Steve Bashani, who then took over the Ravens, uh, to Mike Brown and the Bengals for 16 seasons. So I was fortunate to have in Mike Brown an owner uh, whose father was Paul Brown, who that for my first, I can't tell you how many years, we talked seven days a week. It might be for five minutes or 55 minutes. It might be on the phone from South Carolina or, or I was in Europe on vacation in Greece to, you know, it, it didn't matter. And that man, that's all he does is football. And it's generally seven days a week, almost 50 weeks of the year. You know, since when I was there with Mike, I, he took one vacation, you know, literally. And that's the thing. Football has been his life. And this is his baby, and I understand that. And I work for Mr. Modell, Mr. Rooney, who I understood that. And that was why I think I could be successful in Cincinnati, when everybody said, why are you doing that? Because I, I knew, and I knew the passion he had on everything, and that was my job to get him to understand how I saw it. I knew that was my task. And literally, it was, it was, it was you know, I mean, I couldn't have had a better person to work for, you know. And, you know, and some days he would say, Marvin, I knew this one, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I knew I couldn't rush into his offices. Mike, we got to do this right now. I had to say, Mike, have you ever thought about this? Or Mike, would you look at this? Could you think about this? You think about this, adding this, or doing this, or adding this player, doing this player. Let's do this. Let's do that. And let him think about it. And he'd call me back later in the day. I would go back up there and we'd talk about it. Or the next morning, you know. Or he'd say, you know what, I don't want to do that. I, I need this one. I got the, you know, this one I'm gonna I'm gonna stay strong on. You know, and, and those are the things. And and but over that time, that's the kind of relationship, you know, we kinda of had. And uh, you know, so it was good that way. And I think that's the thing. That when I had coaches leave me to be head coaches, I told them, You be aligned with the person that's helping you make this that's making decisions. You guys gotta be on the same page. And if it's yourself and the, the owner, the GM, and you, you and the GM better be in line. Because if you're split and, and you're going to the owner about this and he's going about that, that's a bad day. That's not going to turn out good very often. That you've got to get aligned at the hip with the guy that's helping you and you're working alongside each other. You've got to do it together. It's really important. In my case, I was blessed because I had one-stop one shop, shopping. I had the owner who was the president, who was the GM, and his family, and, and we worked. But not all these other people necessarily always chiming in. They gave opinion and so forth, and we tried to work it out. And when we left that office, I knew we had to be unified.
it couldn't be his decision or my decision. It was going to be our decision. And I think that's really important. You've said some things um, today, and it doesn't surprise me that really speak to your integrity and your character. Um, how has money over the, over your career changed? I don't know. I say, unfortunately, I've probably taken jobs before I knew how much money I was going to make a couple times. <laughs> and got surprised. It doesn't surprise me, but not, not from a ignorant standpoint, more of just from a passion and, a, and just yeah. trying to just win and do the right thing versus been the first thing on my mind. Mm -hmm. And when I heard hear coaches say, Well, I gotta go to Duke, I gotta chase the chase the money, it's 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 not good. All money's not good money, particularly in coaching, believe me. And, and I'm sure it's the same thing in, in professional world as well. You know, the grass is not always greener. And uh and I and I think it's really important all the time that uh the environment you work in uh would be very, very important. And yes, coaching the salaries and what people made, the money that I made, people that money continue to make continues to go up. It's incredible. It's way different than when I told my parents that I wanted to be, I was no longer going to be a business major and or first be an engineer and then a business major that I wanted to be a coach. You know, that's not what they wanted to hear. Um, but yet it's been a great life. It's provided a lot for a lot for my family and, and my extended family and so forth. And I've been blessed that way. So, um, but, but yeah, I, I think making decisions based on money is always hard. Um, you know, I think early on in coaching, you, you have to take care of, you got to do things. It's really important. So you want to get yourself in the right positions to do that, um, you know, that way. But, uh, you know, I think as you go, then it's better, you know, that you're in the right kind of environment. Uh, I always wanted, like I, I told people when I was having the opportunity to become a head coach, I wanted to go to a place where my coaches' families had an opportunity to thrive and flourish. I knew mine would, but to make sure the rest of them were. And I was blessed to have uh, three quarters of the staff that I started with be with me still through the end. And, uh, you know, other than guys who left to become coordinators and head coaches and so forth. And I had to make two or three changes uh, because you're not always going to be, it's not always going to be the right fit. And I think that's the hardest part about coaching. And, you know, things is when you have to make a change, you're making that change. And Mr. Brown, Mike would always talk to me about this. He said, Marvin, those are good people. And I go, yes, and so are the other 17 people around them. <laughs> They're good people. And, but we have to do this for the sake of everyone else. We have to get better here. I failed. I, I've tried. Uh, I've tried to help this person and, and I failed in getting it done because I felt responsible all the time as well. And uh, when I interviewed for a job that I didn't get uh, back in 2002, I guess it was, or 2001, uh, you know, that was one of the things in talking to the owner of that team. He said, well, how many coaches you have? And I said, you know, 16, 17 at the time. Now they have 20 some. And how many equipment guys? How many trainers? And he says, he's the running head coach. And I said, well, hopefully before you dis you decide you don't like him, it's because he's not doing it. You feel like he's not doing a good job. And I've already recognized it, or you've come to me and asked me about it. And I look to try and uh, so solve the situation by helping him and doing things differently. So we help him. And then he goes, yeah, but I don't like this guy. <laughs> I said, yes, I understand that. But it's not personal. It's because he's not, you don't feel like we're getting the production we need or whatever's happening. And we go in and we help this person. And if I can't help him, then I got to make a change. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, but it was a sticking point for him. But it was something that happened with his previous staff where he had gone to the head coach and said, this person didn't get it done. I want him out of here. And the head coach was protecting him. And eventually the head coach lost his job. And that was all stuck in his mind. Well, you talk about money not being a motivator of what has driven you to success. And 
the fact that you've had such an amazing career and so many people look to you for advice and you're, you have a speaking uh, uh, business now and, uh, and you, you, you know, you've done well financially it really speaks to the fact that when you, you're true north, uh, not being money, the money came as a result and dollars do follow value. So obviously you put a tremendous amount of value out into the profession, into the world. And you, you're married. How many years been married to Peggy? It'll be 40 this summer. I mean, congratulations. It's three grandkids, uh, a happy uh, together family. That's, that's saying a lot. Career, let alone football, which is such a demanding uh, career. There is um, a tool, and I, and I appreciate everything you're saying. There's a tool that, that I've shared with you that we use with clients. It's a, it's a Maslow's hierarchy type of a tool where you, and a lot of people have used it in a lot of different professions. Deepak Chopra I talked about using a Maslow's hierarchy when he was a resident intern years ago. Um, and he would go to people that were sick in their hospital beds and say, why do you want to get out of uh, bed? Why do you want to get, uh, why do you want to be healthy? And they'd say, well, I want to, I want to, you know, go, go home. Uh, why do you want to go home? And then you'd ask a question on that answer. Why do you want to go home? I want to see my family. Why do you want to see your family? Um, you know, because I miss them. Why do you miss your family? Because I love them, you know? And so you work up the things that are important. And so when I use a tool like that with people, when you get through level one, it's typically security and not running out of money and things like that. But you start moving up same kinds of answers, being with family and or sometimes it gets spiritual, you know, it's because it's what my mission on earth was. It's what God called me to do. And uh, so it's, it's really, I do appreciate your point of view on that in your business as a great example of someone that wasn't driven by money, but yet money came along as a, because of your success and the value put out there. Yeah, no, we, we've been blessed. I mean, that's the thing, but it, uh, I mean, in coaching, the hours you spent and the commitment that you spend and your time, your family has to spend. You want to be successful. And and that's the one thing about it, you know. And I would tell the players the same thing. You know, the best thing about the National Football League is pay for play. You've got to perform, and then you get an opportunity. Um, I hope we can afford all of you to stay here for your career. I know that's impossible. If you want to be paid at the top of the heap at every position, that can't happen. But hopefully uh, the next guy will see how you got rewarded and he'll play his tail off. You know, that's what I was, you know, when the guys would get drafted, it was like, you know, me and your agent, we want to see you both play your tail off. It's the guy between us we're not sure about. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. It's, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity. Um, hopefully, you know, uh, if we can't afford you here, best of luck and understand what comes with that now. When you walk out these doors and you're being paid at the top of the heap somewhere else, know the responsibility that comes with that too. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's really important. And, uh, you know, it's just, you don't just get paid anymore. No one cares what you look like. Now you got to go perform. So we use a term finding financial flow. People sometimes ask, well, what's that all about? And it's really about finding your zone, finding what's important to you, kind of being on purpose. Um, and you are, how old are you now? I'll be um, 64 and a half, as my grandson would say. 64 and a half. <laughs> okay, so you're 64 and a half years young. Uh, you've uh, done well very financially, but you're still in the game on purpose, um, which is part of being in flow. You know being on purpose, having a goal, and the pursuit of that goal. And that helps bring happiness and kind of what can be what life is all about. So with you, as you sit here today and you reflect back, you uh, be married 40 years to Peggy, uh, two great kids, three grandkids, you're still working at ASU, dropping your knowledge bomb on, on the young next generation, all these your, your professional football career and, and uh, all of that. Too, as you sit there with your finances and looking out, what are some of the things that 
make you comfortable and make you happy about where you are you are today? Well, I, I think one of the things that I think when you're starting out and so forth and you're not really clear on things is, you know, you, is debt, <laughs> number one, you know, and, and you don't quite understand it. Even, you know, I think as time went on and so forth, uh, even real estate debt, things like that, I mean, but then it becomes something where you try to eliminate. And, and I think that's the thing. I think that, uh, you know, all the time, particularly with, uh, with coaches and the transit type lifestyle it can be, you know, is, is how do you eliminate, you know, the debt that comes uh, through that with moving and so forth and have young children and being able to put money aside for them to go to college and, and, and everything that way and to not just the future and I think that's really important um, you know that way uh, uh, I think you know um, talking with tax professionals just things like that things that you know it's no different than we're asking in coaching you know there's a number of different position coaches you have you want the same thing for your financial, uh, you know, uh, your, your, your whole financial being. You know, you want to have people that are expert at what they do and, and help you navigate those waters as well. Mark, what would you, uh, if you had to pick one word that would summarize your, your professional career, what would, that, what would that word be? Hopefully caring. You know, uh, and then later on, ironically, he goes and ends up playing a little bit for Marty Schottenheimer, who grew up in the same town I did. And then Marty hired him on his staff. He was with the Browns. And Bill had a saying over his door. He said, they don't know, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And later on, I'm not sure what season, 93, maybe 92, 93, and with the Steelers after introduced me to his family as his coach and I felt 12 foot tall because every day he put me through the ringer and uh, it was just you know and, and I thought he could come in my office and I could be trying to help him with football and he wouldn't want to pay much attention we started talking about taekwondo and he could talk for an hour and that was with you know and, and so that just things that you figured out what makes people tick where is their happy place and when we could talk about that and I could see those things in his point of view and, and how translated that to him preparing for football it, it was great and, and so I think that I think caring to me is so important somebody said that to me the other day that somebody that I didn't know that knew somebody that played for me, and he said that, and I said, I appreciate that. See, that's the one thing that everybody said, and I said, well, I appreciate that, because in the moment, you don't know that, you know, and, uh, but yeah, when you, you know, your, your, your goal, uh, particularly, you know, as a black coach, and helping mentor these young men, fathers, like we said earlier, fathers, husbands, better brothers, so forth, all the time and and how you speak how they speak you know back when the nfl started micing players up during the game <laughs> i can remember going to one of my players and they would let me listen to the feed afterwards before we released it to nfl films and i was like michael do you understand how you're speaking during the game <laughs> the words you are using <laughs> on the bench during the game he was like, he was amazed. He had no idea. And I think things like that, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we used to laugh when my mom would, you know, uh, first time I heard my son curse. And I was like, where'd you hear that word? He, he looked, you? <laughs> and so after that, every time I talked to the team, I was different. And, and I think those things are, you know, they emulate what you do. And I tell young coaches that all the time when my son was growing up, uh, they were looking at me 
coaches. No, no, he listens to you. He's going to be like you. So, you know, you can't be screaming at the officials. You can't be, you know, John at the other parents and all those kind of things that happen. These young people emulate you just like I did. You know, like we, when we started this, you asked me about, and I said, the, the young, the men that gave up their time to coach me when I was eight, nine years old, those are the people that left the impression on me of how to do this. And that's the same thing today. I don't think that changes. The only difference is now many of these people that are coaching even in high school come from other fields. They're not trained as teachers once, like they once were. You know, they're not educators as much. They come from different wants of life, and then they give their time. And so they have to be, somebody has to instruct them on how to do it. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that's what, you know, where I am in my life, you know, at the end of my career, what my goal job is now is to help these people do that. Well, well said. I was looking back at uh, um, a, some notes when uh, our good friend, Dirk Cutter, who you actually introduced Dirk's wife, Kim, to him. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, when Dirk reached out, when he moved here, he's like, you need to uh, go meet Marv. And he's like, you know, here's a little bit about Marv. He said, but one of the things he said, I don't know if I ever told this, he said, he's uh, one of the nicest humans you'll ever meet. So that's what one of your friends and colleagues has to say about you. And, and it's been true. I've had enjoyed so much getting to know you over the years on the golf course, even though I, I'm surprised you still want to golf with me because uh, I always seem to put it out of bounds every time I'm with you. But uh, uh, appreciate you coming by today. Appreciate you sharing your story with all of us. Um, it's it's a, it's an amazing story, great career, great human, more importantly, and uh, uh, appreciate you coming by today very oh, much. It's been my pleasure. It's been great. It's been great to, and you don't put them all out about there. Just every once in a while, I get away from you. You get it too far. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it gets me in trouble, but appreciate that. Um, and thank you all for uh, listening today. And uh, if you like what you heard, go ahead and rate us on whichever. Uh, stream you're listening on and uh, and uh, make it a great day. This was the Financial Flow Podcast with me, Darren Wright. Thank you for listening and I hope that today you were inspired and informed to move even more into your peak financial flow for success. Mm-hmm.